This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, Katanji Brown-Jackson is all but set to be confirmed to be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll talk with a retired judge from Philadelphia about Biden's choice of KBJ and what her historic confirmation would mean for the high court. There is a universe of untapped talent, African-American women lawyers, judges, who are not being seen. And that's what's so exciting about this moment our newsmaker this week spent most of her career as a community advocate, but she's now focused on helping people through the process of wills. Antoinette Lee has our change maker of the week who's making a huge impact in the community. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. 30 Seconds to Second Chances brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Joe Pratt survived two tours in Vietnam but was barely living after a diagnosis of COPD. My quality of life was about zero. A lung transplant offered a shot at recovery. I didn't have any second thoughts. After six weeks on the wait list, he got the gift of life. A new day. Nearly two dozen people a day die waiting for a second chance, and many are people of color. There's enough of us out here who were donors that eliminate people dying. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Welcome to Bridging Philly. For the first time since the Supreme Court of the United States founding in 1790, we are on the verge of seeing a black woman take her seat. President Joe Biden picked Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to replace retiring Judge Stephen Breyer. Now, she currently serves as a judge on the U.S. Federal Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She is considered to be one of the nation's brightest legal minds, and she would be the first black woman to take a seat on the nation's highest court. Here to discuss this with us is Judge Renee Cardwell-Hughes. She is a highly experienced senior executive attorney and retired judge. Ms. Hughes has uh, 15 years of experience as a trial judge and handled some of Philadelphia's most notorious cases. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Judge Hughes. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Now, Judge Hughes, I am first and foremost extremely interested in your personal take of Biden's choice of Katanji Brown-Jackson. What are your thoughts of her? Katanji Brown-Jackson is incredibly impressive by any measure. Um, Double Harvard has clerked at every level of the court. She has worked in the private sector, has served as a public defender, has done government service on the Sentencing Commission. Her resume is impeccable. I would like to note, though, that all of the candidates that made President Biden shortlist were equally as impressive. The point being, there is a universe of untapped talent, African-American women lawyers, African-American women judges who are not being seen. And that's what's so exciting about this moment that the world is starting to look and notice this body of talent that they've ignored for so long. Now, before he picked her, he did make it a point to say that he would be choosing a black woman specifically, um, and he vowed to do that. How important was it for Biden to do this, to make this particular decision? I think it was a critical decision for a couple of reasons. Um, first, let me say he's not the first president to say that, do that. He's the first president to say it would be a black woman. But Sandra Day O'Connor got on the court because of a commitment to pick a woman. So it's not unusual, you know, even um, Amy Coney Barrett came on the court because of a commitment to pick a woman. What people are overlooking 
is that Biden committed to pick a highly qualified person. And you can't ask for a better person. I mean, if Hollywood were casting a justice, they'd cast Katanji Brown Jackson. She's perfect in every way. So I don't, um, I, I think it was important. But I also want to say from another perspective, Black women make up the vast majority of voters in this country. Mm. Black women vote in numbers unlike any other demographic. We are loyal. We are thoughtful. We've always had an agenda. Better education for our children, better health care for our children, job opportunities for our families. We've always sought equity. So I don't want people to think we don't have an agenda because we do. But our agenda is consistent with the American dream. It is time that politicians begin to recognize that our agenda, which only uplifts America, should be acknowledged. And this is an acknowledgement of who we are and the power we bring to the table. Why do you think it's taken so long to see a Black woman nominated? Well, <laughs> first, we're women, okay? Right. There have not been that many women on the court to begin with. There have only been five women on the court in its 200-plus-year history. Um, so America, unfortunately, has a long history of sexism. The court's 118 men. Women were last to get the vote. Black women got their vote after white women. So America has not done a good job of recognizing talent. And you're probably going to hear me say this a lot. I think we cheat ourselves when we ignore pure talent. Mm. So when we think only white men or only men, whether they're black, Hispanic, whatever, but when we're not taking advantage of all the opportunity, all the skill, all the leadership. And, and so that's why it's taken so long because America has been very narrow in its perspective. I think that we are broadening our view right now. And that's why this moment is so special. Judge Hughes, let's talk about the process. We are, of course, scrutinizing the process because of who's involved. But have these hearings for SCOTUS nominees always been this rigorous? The nature of these hearings were very collaborative prior to Robert Bork. When Robert Bork was nominated to the court, and then, in fact, he became a term, he became um, a verb, people got borked which meant that people were attacked um, based on not just their legal careers, but other aspects of their life. And so the hearings have been more and more contentious since Robert Bork. Um, Robert Bork was in the 70s. But from Bork forward, the hearings have been very, very contentious. The court has become politicized. And it's become politicized because the very conservative agenda in the country has recognized that there are some issues that they'll never get through the political process so they can get them through the court. Mm. Um, I looked at this recently. In the previous administration, 85% of the vacancies filled on the federal bench, because that's all that's filled by the Senate is the federal bench, were men. But Republicans recognize the power of the court and have long spent a great deal of energy focusing on who should be on the court. Mm -hmm. But the process as a result has become highly partisan and very political and very contentious, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Now, with that being said, do you think that she has been treated fairly throughout this process? In your opinion, of course. I don't think she's been treated in an unexpected fashion. I expected it to be a challenging confirmation process. I didn't think the Republicans would go quietly into this good night. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not expect them to be as misguided as they were. And by that, I mean specifically Josh Hawley, who was so hung up on her sentencings and pornography cases. He has confirmed and placed people on the bench who have records that are much more, uh, to use a layperson's word, lenient 
than Katanji Brown Jackson. The sentencing guidelines don't necessarily handle pornography cases in a way that makes sense to the regular community. Just as when we first did the drug statutes, they didn't make any sense. The disparity between crack and cocaine, the disparity that people rarely talk about between pills and LSD and how they were sentenced. Mm -hmm. Pornography has that same issue. So people talk about the number of images, but the number of images doesn't necessarily give you any insight into the seriousness of the crime. So I thought Josh Hawley was just completely out to lunch and in many ways hypocritical because he approved people whose records were far worse than hers. And worse is a term I use loosely. Mm -hmm. She's sentenced within the guidelines and she's sentenced consistent with her judicial philosophy, which is one based in humanity, grounded in the fact that we need to rehabilitate people because absent being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, all of these people, these citizens are returning to our community. And we need to invest in ensuring that they return in a way that makes them more productive. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was an abomination. Um, Ted Cruz, there are no words. There are no words for the manner in which he used this platform. You know, he wanted to hold up and flag anti-racist baby, which is now number one seller on Amazon. I don't think the way in which she was treated was unexpected. I think some of it was silly and out of line. Um, but given the way the hearings have gone since the 70s, we should have been prepared for it. And I think in the legal community, we were prepared for it. Right, right. So we, we knew that she would be looked at through a much broader lens than others. A much broader and a more hostile lens. Mm. It wouldn't focus just on her judicial philosophy. It wouldn't focus just on her credentials. They were looking for gotcha moments. But this is a woman who has already been confirmed by the Senate three times. There were no gotcha moments to be had. Does this change the decision-making climate in the highest court as they so-called have a reliable liberal vote trading one for another? I mean, will her confirmation change the climate at all? Is possible. So this is the thing people fail to understand about the court. Okay, it's a very small group of people. And yes, we can, quote unquote, categorize them as liberal, progressive, conservative, whatever. But their commitment to take each issue as it comes and their commitment and structure that has them go into conference talking as a group means that someone like Katanji Jackson who is collaborative, who is thoughtful, who is deeply researched, who's a magnificent advocate, has the opportunity to sway people and to show a different perspective. There are votes that would surprise you that Chief Justice John Roberts has taken, where he sided with the quote-unquote liberals. So you don't know. And that's the beauty and the power of the court and the law. There is always an opportunity to achieve justice. So, yeah, people say it won't make a difference. They're wrong. The possibility will make it. The change will make a difference. It's a different voice at the table. And it's a voice who has represented the indigent and who has represented the elite of the world. She knows it all. How do you think she is different from uh, retiring Judge Steve Breyer? She's been a defense lawyer. She's been a public defender. She's represented the indigent. We haven't had someone on the court who's represented the indigent since Thurgood Marshall. His voice mattered. His understanding of what it meant to represent people who could not afford counsel led to some extraordinary rulings. And I recognize that he lived the last... (laughs) part of his career in the dissent, but even his dissents today are still mined to give us the opportunity to find a way to improve the quality of justice. It makes a huge difference that she's had that experience. It also makes a huge difference that, um, and this is similar but different to Breyer, she worked with the United States Sentencing Commission. Breyer wrote the sentencing guidelines. 
He is the architect of the guidelines. The changes that have occurred in the guidelines with respect to mandatory sentencing and drugs came through Breyer. Her work on the Sentencing Commission matters because she understands the ins and outs, the parts of it that are effective and the parts of it that still need to be tweaked for us to receive justice. She brings some unique perspective. And then let's not discount her lived experience, because as a judge, your commitment is to be fair and unbiased. But we are human beings. And so our ability to understand as a woman, as a mother, as a person who's been discriminated against, it matters. When you look at the facts, it matters. You brought up her sentencing record uh, for a moment. You were talking about leniency, and I know that her sentencing record on more than one occasion has been called lenient. Why is that a factor, if that's even a, a fair assessment? A, it's not a fair assessment. She's sentenced within the guidelines. She's exercised her judgment. And as she so powerfully pointed out herself, her opinions are long and detailed so that people would understand her judicial philosophy and the way in which she applied it to the facts in front of her. So I would never, I use the word lenient because that was the word that was in the media. Mm -hmm. That was the word that the Republicans had thought to use with her. But her sentences are not lenient. They are within the guidelines. Um, Her record is solid. And it's actually not relevant because every single case is unique. And if you don't have a judge, whether they're in the Court of Common Pleas, as I was, the state Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, if you don't have a judge who commits to look at each body of facts individually, then you'll never get justice. We have precedent. We have the law that binds us, the law that's come before us. But the facts of every case are unique. And It is vitally important. So you don't know what she'll do if a pornography case comes to the Supreme Court. You don't know because you won't know the facts until they're there. Whether it's drugs, pornography, you won't know what she'll do with white collar crime. You don't know what she'll do with immigration. It's all so fact driven. Mm -hmm. Now, the impact is extraordinary because once you get to the Supreme Court, There is no recourse. There is nowhere else to go. And if Congress doesn't like it, then they need to write a new law. So it is important what will be done, but it can't be guessed. Well, so far, it looks like um, she will be confirmed as it appears that she has the votes. Of course, the latest with Senator Susan Collins saying that she will, in fact, vote for her. And, you know, we talked about party politics. And I'm wondering, you know, besides party politics, what good reason would the GOP have, in your opinion, to reject her? The same reason they rejected Merrick Garland, because they want to save the seat for themselves. I remind your listeners that President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, who is now the attorney general, um, to a seat on the Supreme Court. And the Republicans held it vacant until President Obama's term ended. So other than pure politics, nothing. And fortunately, the votes exist to confirm her our country will be much better for her being confirmed. Let's talk a little bit more about her experiences and how her experiences as a Black woman specifically will help shape how she approaches cases in the Supreme Court. Will it have a factor? I mean, it's part of who she is, so I'm imagining it will. Everything about one's life impacts how you handle courses. This is a woman who's steeped in public service. She has a brother who's an army veteran, who's a police officer. Um, Her parents are people of service. Her husband is a doctor. She's a mother. All of that colors your perspective and gives you insight into humanity. And the law is nothing without humanity. Mm -hmm. So she will bring a different perspective. She will be... um, one of only two people on the court who will openly admit that they've been discriminated against. Okay. I am confident that not many people on the Supreme court can say that somebody thought they were the janitor or thought they were the secretary. And that is said with no disrespect to those professions because they are professions. Mm -hmm. 
but people make assumptions about who we are based on the color of our skin, based on our gender. She's had that experience. So she knows what it means to walk into a store and have someone say to you, they don't want to serve you because of what you look like or who you love. She knows what that means. And she knows that the law should protect all of us. Can you think of any cases that came before the Supreme Court over the last, say, 10 years or so that perhaps she could have had some influence and possibly a a change of outcome? That would be pure speculation. Okay. What I would hope is that had she been at the court when the cake case came, um, okay, to help your audience remember, this was the case in which the baker didn't want to make a wedding cake for the same sex couple. Right. And honestly, most of us thought the law would protect that couple because, you know, either it's American money or it's not. Okay. But if it's American money, you should be able to buy the cake. Um, So candidly, a lot of us were surprised by the ruling that said the baker is an artist Mm -hmm. and didn't have to bake the cake for the couple. Um, I would have hoped that her perspective and insight might have led to a different result, but that's pure speculation because the court is split on it is split conservative versus liberal on that issue. It's pure speculation. I know her voice would have bought a different insight to the conference when the court was discussing it. I can't say it it would have changed the outcome. Right. I I would think that just her presence, just her presence alone on the bench will bring about either more thought or more discussion or a different perspective to to each case. Yeah. Believe that. And I know most of us do believe that inclusion matters. Different voices at the table matter and her voice will matter. Absolutely. Well, she is young and if and when confirmed, well, she probably will be confirmed. She'll be there for a while, a long while. And that's something that should be celebrated, of course. I agree. It absolutely should be celebrated. And people worry sometimes that the court is a lifetime appointment. But we all grow and evolve as human beings. There was a justice, Hugo Black. He had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. As his career evolved and developed, he was a champion for criminal justice. He was a champion for people who needed a voice to be heard at the table. And one would have never thought it based on his background. Mm. People grow and evolve. And that's why I keep saying Having Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson at the table gives an opportunity for people to grow and evolve in their thinking. How will her confirmation influence emerging young leaders in law? Inspiration. (laughs) Absolute inspiration. Okay. It is a true statement that if if your eye can see it, if your mind can believe it, if your heart can believe your body can achieve. You've got to see it. You've got to know that the door has been open and you can walk through it. It is so inspiring and so exciting because it means that there's an opportunity for my granddaughter. Right. I have about 15 young women that I mentor. Mm-hmm. There's a shot for them to walk through that door. You know, one of of us is going to be president. Trust me. And America will be all the better for one of us sitting in the Oval. The day is coming. And that's what's inspiring about it. It's not just limited to lawyers. It's limited to all little girls of color who have never seen themselves in certain rooms. Well, we're going to see ourselves at the highest level. And it's like, there's a path. I can get there and I can be me getting there. I don't have to change Mm -hmm. and be like a man. I can be myself and still get to the highest level. I love it. I'm so excited. It it is absolutely exciting. And, you know, I'm wondering, since you say there is a group of um, uh, young people that you mentor, then what are they saying? How are they feeling? One of the things that they're so proud of and excited about is 
girlfriend has a steel rod up her back. <laughs> Some of these senators have been rude. They have been ugly. And she has maintained her calm, her composure. She has maintained that face of not looking down at them, not being evil, just answering the question. You will not fluster me. And they are so excited by that, that she is so calm. Because we've all said some of those people deserve to be treated less than kindly. (laughs) But she's been cool. She's been calm. She's been cool. Everyone is so impressed with how she has maintained her composure, her dignity, and has never, ever been flustered. Mm. She's never been flustered, not once. She was still calm, thoughtful, incredibly smart, and responsive. She didn't avoid any question. Judge Renee Cardwell-Hughes, thank you so much for lending your voice to this subject. We do appreciate your time on Bridging Philly. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 30 Seconds to Second Chances brought to you by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Abdul Kareem Salahuddin was near death in 2014. I needed to get a liver transplant. At the same time, Carol McLeod's son had a seizure. Brian was declared brain dead. Carol, an Irish Catholic, decided to donate his organs. That's something that he would have wanted. Kareem, a devout Muslim, received Ryan's liver. God orchestrated this thing for us to come together. Now, their family. He's my older adopted son. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. When it comes to end-of-life issues and the handling of loved ones' estates, it can be a pretty difficult process to navigate. Shara Day Howard sits down with our newsmaker this week, Tracy Gordon, Register of Wills for the City of Philadelphia. As women of color from all backgrounds and communities across America take a chance and transition their grassroots advocacy into mainstream politics, the awareness that having women, and specifically women of color, in positions of power can affect real change through affecting policy. In Philadelphia, that's also proving true for people like former community advocate turned elected official, Register of Wills, Tracy L. Gordon, who went from mom and block captain to mom and Madam Register. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Now, Madam, you hold quite a few titles. So as an elected official, I serve as Register of Wills and Clerk of Office Court. So the Register of Wills has jurisdiction over the probate of wills, and we also grant letters to personal representatives. That's when you have a will or letters of administration when there's no will. The register has the power to hold hearings, take testimony, review evidence, and render their decision on the issue that's presented. So you're the real deal. You're the community advocate who turned politician. And you say you did it because you really wanted to affect change and you knew it was more effective through policy. Yeah, I had a a sort of weird journey. I know you know the the saying started at the bottom, now I'm here. (laughs) Oh, you're bringing Drake into this. I hear you. Okay. Yes. I started as a block captain, a concerned parent who just was concerned about the well-being of my four children and the environment that I was, you know, bringing them up in. Mm-hmm. And I found out as a block captain, it gave me power to be able to get information from the city and disseminate it to the community to assist us in quality of life issues. So mm-hmm. by being a block captain, you know, some of the duties is the whole block cleanups and I would always be on a list uh, with the city planning um, institute, they would send me information and I would just make copies and disseminate it. And from there, I went on to be a committee woman. And a committee woman is a elected official, uh, elected office. And our job is to GOTV, get the vote out. And it's a political job. And I start being around political uh, circles and I attended every meeting because I was just really concerned about my property value and the quality of life, crime, drugs, et cetera, better schools. And so I just started going to meetings and speaking up uh, for the voiceless, for people that, you know, were scared to speak up or people that, you know, just didn't have 
you know, the information or the time to attend the meeting. So as a result of that, I learned that a lot of power comes or came with being elected official. And when um, some of the offices came up, like uh, I ran for a uh, city commissioner, I ran for a uh, city council, and I ran for these offices basically because I felt that I would be more qualified in those offices because at the end of the day, or the bottom line, um, I learned as a, as a grassroots organizer is people just want, you know, basic support. They want to be heard. They want somebody to answer the phone and they want somebody to solve problems. And I've always been a problem solver. And the only way, you know, I felt in a city like this to be able to solve problems is to be in the position of authority. And I learned how to circulate petitions and, and, and get the signatures. And I start, you know, just, just being what they call me. And they still consider me to this day, a rebel rouser. But I also call myself an elected activist. And I took the opportunity to run for uh, Registrar Wills of the city of Philadelphia. And a quarter of a million people cast a day vote for Tracy Gordon. And here I serve now going into my third year. So in some way, you figured out the formula. You recognize that being a mother and having real life experience, that experience can really inform effective policy. Yeah. Um, so as my role as registered wills, I made key, I made key goals in my administration, and that was to help the underserved and underprivileged communities who had not been able to assess the generational wealth and power passed on to them by their families. And so I just got concerned about the, the, the mere fact that your family owned property and somehow didn't understand the process of transferring their generational wealth by way of visiting the register of wills and probating the state to empower their families to be able to get access to uh, their wealth. And it just startled me that people don't understand how basic information like this they should have, whether they own property or not. I tied it into the poverty rate, you know, because I've always heard city of Philadelphia is the largest, poorest city in the, in the nation. And I looked at all these elected officials and I was like, you know, we understand that's the label you're giving us. Okay, so how do we solve this? And the fact that I learned that the one of the main reasons why we are one of the poorest, largest cities here in Philadelphia is because we're sitting on 10,000 tangled titles. In other words, people are living in homes that they don't legally own, so they can't do legal things for those properties. And as a result, it's become a safety issue for our community. It's become a homeless issue for our community. And it's become a problem. I'm good at making sure that I understand what the information is and I understand how to disseminate. And you give it to the people who need it most. You give it to people who need it most because it's not their fault that no one taught them how to protect their generational wealth. A lot of times we can't get loans because, you know, the credit, the redlining. But you should be, we could qualify for grant money, but you're, we're talking about people who are living in homes that they believe that they own because they believe it because it was their mother home or their grandmother home. And they believe that it's an automatic transfer. But unfortunately, it's not. And so we have all this access to grant money to help them get infrastructure repaired that they don't qualify for simply because of a technicality. And maybe you're a perfect example of having a woman of color in a position of power who can uniquely see the needs of a community. Yeah, because they're going to trust me. They trust me because they trusted me as an activist. So it's not like I was a typical politician, which most people don't trust. They look at me like I'm them. And I want them to look at me like we're the same because I look at this office as an office of privilege and an office that I am supposed to serve. Like you are my boss. The citizens of Philadelphia pay me from their city taxes. So I'm not their boss. They are my boss. And so I think what's helping in this instance where, yes, it does disproportionately affect Black American households because most of our households are headed by Black women. And when we look at these 10,000 tangled titles, we're not looking at 10,000 titles, 10,000 buildings. We're looking at 10,000 families. And with the economy today and the aggression of, uh, 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 
of gentrification. Right now, we are in such a crisis. The University of Penn put out a study that said if one of these houses on a given block was able to get basic system repair grants, crime will go down on that block 22%. So magnify that by 10,000 houses. And also the fact that if you're, you have any assets or you're living in a house and you don't have a will, that's another potential tangled title. There is no way in the world we're going to be able to ever move up into the rank of not being the poorest, largest city until we address that issue. And somehow, some way, I found that position or that position found me as Registrar Wills. And I'm doing everything in my power to be able to educate people on how to protect their generational wealth. So they not only survive, but they thrive. So you can see that all of these things are directly connected. Not only that, homelessness. Mm -hmm. These houses are, 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 uh, I just uh, was looking in my uh, citizen planning um, guide. I'm part of a, a group with the Citizen Planning um, Institute. And it said we have 40,000 vacant lots. Now, what happened to those houses on those lots? People don't just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to abandon generational wealth. Something happened while we have all these vacant lots. And when you look at where the mapping of those tangled titles were, Penn Charitable Trust uh, put out a map. The city controller put out a map during the same period to show where the high rate of gun violence was. When you look at both of those maps, they're identical. The amount of the violent crime that's happening in our city in certain zip codes, which is brown and black neighborhoods, coincides with the amount of tangled titles. And then Penn told us that if these properties be able to be put into these family names legally, then they could be able to qualify for home improvement loans. Low equity loans to send their kids to college. Basic system repair grant, which is free money from the government to repair the infrastructure of homes that are 100 plus years old. Given all of that, now we look up at the highest court in the land. We see the Supreme Court and the possibility of a Black woman taking one of those seats. How important is that? We have the highest block, number one. So why shouldn't someone that look like us represent us? when we're the ones that have the highest voting block. That's simple. Why wouldn't you want someone, you know, we're, we're the most interested and most active in, in civics. So why wouldn't we want a Black woman who has been marginalized? And we're always behind the scenes. If you look up in any history, women were the really ones that was behind the scenes on all the great movements. We just never got the credit because it was a lot of sexism. And it still is a lot of sexism in America. It's our time because we're finally saying, hey, why why do we have to be the king or queen maker? Why can't we be the king or the queen? And it's very important. She's overqualified for that position. We've been qualified. There's plenty of us that are attorneys, uh, doctors, and lawyers. We're just as qualified as our white counterparts, our Hispanic counterparts, our Asian counterparts. And I think that Black women see that we have the most to stand to lose. Because every day, when I look at TV, all I see is the carnage of our children and families dying every day. We have to to get in those positions because we, as far as I am concerned, I believe I have better solutions. I believe I'm, I, I was a problem solver as a single mother, and I could be a problem solver as an elective official, and I'm a problem solver as the Registrar of Wills. So why not? And recently, the Crown Act has been a matter of topic, and this is a prime example of how policy directly impacts women of color, and Black women in particular. Because no one else's job is dependent on whether or not they wear braids or locks. Yeah, I mean, if I, I, I'll be honest. You know, I, I, I wear my braids proudly, but sometimes I think I have an interview. Should I wear my braids? Should I take them out? Like these are all questions. Like, this is a hairstyle. This is a hairstyle that we. There's different hairstyles. I mean, who has the right to define what a proper hairstyle is? Why is 
the standard Eurocentric. You know, um, our standard of beauty, we wear our hair in all different ways. What I don't understand is when I read about children not being allowed to graduate because they have locked. In 2022, the Crown Act, I don't even understand why it even has to be a bill that's passed to force people to understand and respect a person's right or decision to wear their hair the way they want. We have different type of hair. Braids are beautiful. The nominee for Scotus, she has what we consider sister locks. They look beautiful. I was really proud to see her sitting there at attention with her sister locks. You know, and and I, I I was like, oh, she has sister lots, you know, and um, you know, I was I was proud of that. But the main thing is, I want my granddaughter to be comfortable with wearing her hair naturally. I perm my hair for years. It does a lot of damage to your hair. You know, I stopped perming my hair. It's a little more maintenance, but you know, I feel much better not burning my scalp. I want my granddaughter to go to an interview and be judged on her intelligence and not her hairstyle. We have come a long way. We wear our hair in all different styles comfortably. And I'm glad that I lived to see the day that braids are normal to me. Locks is normal to me. Afros are normal. They're not just statements. They're just the way I want to wear my hair. You know, because there are a minority of people that still want to discriminate and tell us how to wear our hair, that is necessary, that there needs to be some legislation to protect us. Now, what do you tell that young girl who wants to be a judge, who wants to be a lawyer, who wants to make her community better? What do you tell her? I always tell the young people that talk to me, be consistent and sincere. Consistency always works. I always tell them, when people tell people you can be you know, whatever you want to be. It takes hard work too. This has been a long, hard journey for me. I've always had to fight for my right to run for office, but I never gave up. It's another day and dream on. You might lose the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. It's okay to lose. Always remember, at least I tried. Madam Register, thank you so much for joining us here at Bridging Philly. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia. And since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Deborah Advanced Behavioral Health. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this week because she is surely a changemaker, bridging communities through policy and organizing. She's a graduate of Temple University and her activism has taken her all over the nation. Some of her most recent hats include National Advisor for Black Engagement for the Biden-Harris campaign. She was also the Black Engagement Director for President President Biden's inauguration. But what she's very widely known for is championing the Crown Act. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry, you'll hear about it in just a moment. Ajoa B. Asamoa, welcome to Bridging Philly. Now, since the beginning, you've been a leader in the Crown Act movement, which has become a nationwide thing. The House just approved the ban, and now it's moving on to the Senate. For those who are not familiar with this, what is the Crown Act and what is your role in pushing it forward? So the Crown Act itself is a piece of legislation, it's a bill that seeks to right the historic wrong, if you will, by outlawing race-based hair discrimination. It amends the existing definition of race to include traits that are historically associated with it. And so I worked with primarily a dynamic team of lawyers led by a brother named William Sherman and a sister, Sonny Harris, who conducted the legal research to look at how this issue was playing out in the courts previously. And they developed sort of a legal strategy for what would become the Crown Act by developing a legal guidance memo. And so once we had that, I then helped write the bill, again, with the purpose of outlawing race-based hair discrimination. So it amends the definition of race to include traits that are historically associated with it, such as hair texture and protective styles 
which we define as locks, twists, braids, bantu knots, et cetera. We've seen too many people being passed over for promotions, having offers of employment rescinded, having negative workplace experiences. We've seen too many children have negative educational experiences, being told you cannot participate in your graduation ceremony because you wore locks. We've seen children be humiliated, have their identity attacked, essentially, on a wrestling mat and forced to make a decision no child should ever have to make. And to choose between, on the spot, it's worth noting, having your identity attacked and your locks cut with everybody watching and cheering you on, or to forfeit a match you earned the right to participate in. You talking about young girls having warped perceptions of self-worth based on society lifting a Eurocentric standard of beauty. You have little black girls turned away from school saying, citing, I should say those people, your hair is a violation of school rules. So these quote unquote race neutral policies disproportionately impact black people, disproportionately black women and girls, but not exclusively. We see the same things happening to black boys and black men. Of course, we are inextricably linked. So what happens to our men happens to our women, what happens to our boys happens to our girls. And so we've seen this issue, which is a long-standing problematic practice of racial discrimination. And so because it's racial discrimination, we had to amend the definition of race without defining it. It's something that's assumptive. So we had to go in and amend the definition of race to include those traits that are historically associated with it, thereby explicitly categorizing our hair, what grows out of our head, as a racial characteristic, and of course, including the protective styles that's tied to our racial identity as well. And so we are collectively, uh, with my co-creators, Orlena Wonka-Blanchard, who I always have to lift because I created the legislative and the social impact strategy for the movement, but she developed the marketing strategy. And that's the other part of this. This is a movement as well. So the Crown Act itself is a piece of legislation I work at the intersection of policy and politics. I work to change the laws. Collectively, with Orlena, Kelly, and AC, we're also working to shift culture. So it's become a movement as well. Intentionally, I should note, but it's sort of twofold in the way people talk about it. We're talking about years of hard work that you've contributed to this bill. Where does it stand now? So it has been in the works for some time. We met at Essence Festival in 2018 and began working on this issue as a collective again, as co-creators and the Crown Coalition was co-founded by Dove and the National Urban League uh, and some others. And where it stands now is it's continuing, we are continuing our work collectively to support those members as activists, not as lobbyists, but as activists to outlaw race-based hair discrimination nationwide. The U.S. Virgin Islands passed the bill last week, uh, Massachusetts, just passed the Senate version of the bill that it previously passed in the House. And so they'll go to what's called conference just to reconcile language. As it stands right now, 16 states or territories, I should note, have taken the bold step to outlaw race-based terror discrimination by passing it in all of the chambers necessary to get this bill signed into law. Many other states have also introduced this bill and are and it's working its way through the respective legislatures. We're up to 35 and counting jurisdictions and places where the bill, you know, hasn't necessarily passed in the state. We see a focus on local jurisdictions as well. It's been introduced and passed in the United States House of Representatives. This go round under the leadership of Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, co-led by Congresswoman uh, Gwen Moore and other colleagues. Last time, first passed in the U.S. House of Representatives led by former Congressman Cedric Richmond, who is now in the White House as the president's senior advisor. Now, Madam Secretary Marsha Fudge, co-led by her when she was a congresswoman and others. 
and it's been introduced in the United States Senate as well by my good friend, Senator Cory Booker from the great state of New Jersey. And so it's been passed for the second time in the House and uh, the Senate is the, the next move, but the work continues nationwide at the local, state and federal levels. And aside from just this, you wear many hats in the political realm, even to the height of working for our president and vice president. That's kind of a big deal. Tell us about your foundation and how that's led you to where you are today. I'm what you call a movement baby. My mom was an organizer. My dad was an organizer and is a scholar activist who is now a retired Africana studies and political science professor. So I grew up in the protest tradition. I was at my first rally at the age of two years old. And by the time I was five, I was in college classrooms with my dad, learning about Black history and building political power and understanding policy. I should note, though, my name is very intentional. My mother was born in the Jim Crow South in North Carolina, and my father was born under colonization in what would later become the Republic of Ghana. And so by the time I was nine, I had the opportunity to visit the birthplace of both parents and witness anti-Blackness in, in both places. So you're talking about two different countries, two different continents, and in two different hemispheres, essentially, we're dealing with anti-Blackness. That is a global struggle. And so my work continues to evolve. My life's purpose is taking on assignments and completing them and going on to the next thing truly with the focus on advancing racial equity and ensuring that the world is better when I'm gone because I was in it. And you are a Temple grad, TU. I'm also an owl. We're everywhere. Briefly tell us about your time at Temple and how Philly in general influenced your trajectory. I did my undergraduate work in the Africana Studies Department. Temple University was the first in the world to create a terminal degree in the discipline of Africana studies. And so at the time that I was there, an undergrad as a baby, I studied under the likes of Dr. Nathaniel Normand and Dr. Obenga, who's a world famous linguist. So many people, Dr. Greg Carr, I, I call Sonia Sanchez mama. And so there are so many scholars who I was able to sit at their feet. I listened to John, Dr. John Henry Clark in real life. And so there's so many people who I was able to learn from, from being in Philadelphia, which is such a unique place in terms of the history, et cetera. So a combination of my own personal upbringing combined with my academic training, a commitment to moving uh, the needle for Black people and advancing the condition of our people globally, tackling anti-Blackness, that is something that I would say collectively uh, has informed my work. Ajua B. Asamoah, thanks so much again for joining us. If you want to hear more from this interview with our Philly Rising Changemaker, you can check out our podcast on Apple, Audible, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search Bridging Philly. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. I'm Antoinette Lee, and if you know someone we should highlight next, someone making a difference in your community, please let me know. I would love to interview them for our next show. You can tweet me at A-R-Lee on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.